Good morning. It's, it's good to worship with you. Uh, it's been a great weekend. You've been very kind to us, uh, letting us come and stay from Michigan. And we, we trashed Chuck and Mary's house. So maybe you guys could, I'm just kidding. Uh, it's been a great weekend. And uh, I want you to know that you were well, you have been well represented uh, at the question and answer times if you weren't able to make it. Uh, lots of good questions, uh, a healthy measure of skepticism, a lot of encouraging words. And uh, one thing that really stood out to Lisa and I in the midst of all of it is that you deeply, deeply care about the church, the body of Christ, and uh, what the Lord is doing here at Lakewood. So we are grateful uh, that you've been a part of this weekend. Uh, now, I, I do offer one warning. I had a brief uh, interaction with someone yesterday that just revealed the danger of this weekend and, quite frankly, the most difficult part of the next 40 minutes or so. You see, this weekend has a way to turn into something of an audition, uh, a performance. Can I just gently remind us that we don't have time for that? You know, tomorrow's Monday, right? And on Monday, what we find as we go into the real world, we find exploding diapers and dirty dishes, fractured relationships, health and financial issues. No, my friends, we do not have time for a performance, but rather we come here this morning saying, God, are, are you real? Do you have something to offer me from your word? Because... I'm a person of need. I got things on my plate. Tomorrow's coming. Uh, so we're excited to be here, uh, but we're excited most that we can sing and pray, witness people give their lives to Christ and the, to, to sit under the word of God. It's all a part of the worship that we do, and it's a privilege to be here with you. Uh, let me pray a short prayer a wise old man once said. Father, what we do not know, teach us. What we do not see, show us. And what we do not do, mold us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you have a copy of the scriptures, I'd ask that you turn to Psalm 73. If you don't own a copy, I believe there are Bibles in the foyer here, and uh, I did this in the first service. I, I got in trouble with Ken a little bit. If you don't own a Bible, just take one. Take one of those. It's yours now. Uh, we want you to have a copy of the Word of God if you don't have one accessible to you. And as you turn to Psalm 70, 73, the, the, the title of the sermon this morning comes directly from our text, and it is good. It is good to be near God. Now that seems like a very safe and simple and maybe Sunday school kind of thing to say on a Sunday morning. Surely I can come in here in a church, you look like a bunch of religious folks, I can say it is good to be near God. But if we're honest, we're not always convinced that's the case. You see, oftentimes we do, go through, we do go through seasons of dryness, seasons of difficulty, seasons of frustration, and we're not convinced, I mean, not really, that it's good to be near God. I mean, just take sin, for example. 
when we're tempted by sin to turn and to live the way that, that we would prefer. So whether we struggle with anger or lust or greed or irritation, well, let me give you a very practical example. We drove here from Michigan, went up through the Upper Peninsula, came in through Duluth, and we're driving west. And, you know, oh, it was good to be near God until I got to 210. You guys got to figure something out there. Uh, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a disaster. So as I'm driving single lane, heading west on 210, going 40 miles an hour, 30 cars behind me, oncoming traffic, it's busy, busy. I, I, can't, I can't pass. And in that moment, I'm wondering, is it good for me to be near God or is it good for me to be on the bumper of this person so they know I'm here? See, even in our sin and our temptation for anger and frustration, we, we do, it's a very practical question. <laughs> is it good? Is it good to be near God? And I'm sorry if that person was you driving in front of me. Uh, I, I, my wife, you know, gave me a look and I was convinced in that moment to back off the bumper. Um, but uh, I, I believe it's something that God would have us to be convinced of this morning. We're not here making some cute doctrinal statement, some cute Christian cliche that we can sew on a pillow. I think grandma still do that. Yes, it is good to be near God. And I want us to be convinced by it. And I think Asaph in Psalm 73, uh, he does that. So there's three ways I'm going to argue that he puts before us in his word that uh, would be reasons to be convinced it's good. It's good to be near God. The first reason is it's good to be near God because my circumstances, they loom large. Would you read with me, please? Verses one through three. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. <laughs> but, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So we got a good Jewish guy right here, Asap. Grew up in a good Jewish family. And his issue, his dilemma is summarized in these first three verses. So Asap, being a good little Jewish boy, grew up in a family that maybe some of the families that you grew up in. Some of your kids, you ever hear mom sing, Jesus loves you? Well, that's what he grew up in. He grew up in a culture, in a family, in a religious system that said, truly, truly God is good to Israel, especially to those who love him with their hearts. So it may have been something like this. He goes to bed and Pops comes. He says, all right, boy, time to go to bed. Let me tell you. Let me tell you how good God is. Let me tell you what he's done in my life, in my marriage, in my... Let, let me tell you about the Exodus. Man, you know what? Our people, we were enslaved in Egypt. It was crazy. We had to get straw for our own bricks. They were throwing babies. They were killing babies, throwing them in the river. It was crazy. But God, he is good. You know what he did, young Asap? He pulled Israel out of slavery. 
He rescued them. <laughs> well, your mom, you know, she was a little worried to walk through the party in the Red Sea. You know, she wanted to stop, take a selfie. We said, you know, listen, girl, we got to go. We got to get through this Red Sea. And God brought his people out, out of slavery. <laughs> so young Asap here who writes this psalm. Of course, people would meet him in the street. Asap, you're a Jew. You know, is, is God good? Oh, yeah, God's good. Let me tell you what he's done in my family. Let me tell you what he's done for my people. But a young boy becomes a man. And like many of you young people and you gray heads in here, we find out that what we've been told in life smacks hard against the circumstances of life. You say you may have the pillow with the Bible verse, you may have the Sunday school lessons. Mom and dad may have raised you in a home that says, yes, God is good. But then the circumstances of this life loom large and we're right where ASAP is. We say, I have a certain theology, a certain understanding of who you are, God, and that you're good. But now that I'm going through some junk, now that my circumstances loom large, I'm, I'm wondering if, if it, any of it makes sense. He says in verse 2, as for me, I'm slipping. I, I grew up on a foundation that says God is real and he's good, but I'm going to slip off this foundation. I'm going to leave it. Because my circumstances, well, they're starting to color a different picture. And this happens with us, right? I'm not the only one in here, am I, that's had moments of doubting? God, I, I, thought, I thought you were good. I thought this Christian life was worth it. But, but my circumstances, they, they seem to tell a different story. And it's not just believers. But it's people who aren't religious too, unbelievers in your family, in your community, even in this church. If you're here this morning exploring Christianity, just curious, what is all this about? Well, you have some pretty large circumstances you're wrestling with also, don't you? You know you're getting old when the names of the artists that you look out into the secular world, you don't understand their names. So here's, a, here's an unbeliever writing a song. His name is Jelly Roll. And here's what Jelly Roll has to say. Somebody save me. Me from myself. I've spent so long living in hell. All of this drinking and smoking is hopeless, but I feel like it's all that I need. Something inside of me is broken. I hold on to anything that may set me free. I'm so damaged beyond repair. Life has shattered my hopes and dreams. I'm a lost cause. Isn't that profound? Isn't it profound that a broken, non-religious, non-Christian man gets it? That circumstances loom large, and it leaves us with questions. And ASAP, well, it's been summarized. He's, he's got some questions because he's... It wasn't COVID that shaked him. It wasn't financial or, or health difficulties. It wasn't necessarily a fractured relationship. Verse 3 says, his big issue is, 
God, I don't know if you're good because I'm seeing wicked people, people that don't follow you, don't love you. They're running around having the great life. And here's why that's an issue for him. He's a good Jew. All throughout the Old Testament, in the Old Testament law, there's this covenant, there's this promise, these stipulations that God makes with his people. (laughs) All right, Israel, listen, I'm going to give you a law to obey. And if you obey my law, there is blessing for you. There is a land filled with milk and honey. If that sounds strange, it's like having a land filled with caribou coffee and Best Buy. It's a land of comfort and plenty and beautiful lakes and cabins. If you obey me, there'll be blessing for you. But if you don't obey me, if you don't follow me, if you turn your back on me, there's nothing but cursing for you. That is given time and time again in God's law in the Old Testament. So here's Asaph saying, all right, God, are you true to your promises? You said there's blessings for faithful, cursings for not, but I'm suffering and I'm looking at the wicked, as I call them, the fat cats. They're living the good life. Something's not adding up. And many of us, let's be honest, many of us have similar questions. And I know it's a looming circumstance and not just the passing one, because he has more to say. Read with me, please, starting in verse 4. For, because they, these evil people, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. (laughs) Therefore, therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their heart overflows with follies. They scoff and they speak with malice loftily. They threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Pretty radical description of some lofty, proud, arrogant, oppressive people. Verse 10, I'm going to stop here for a moment. It says, therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. You may have a little note in your Bible, a little little number next to that. This is a difficult passage, many commentators say, a difficult verse to translate the Hebrew. So you might have a note at the bottom of your Bible that says something like, the waters of a full cup are drained by them. And in the past, this, you know, anytime I covered this passage, this would be an opportunity for me to make some kind of snide, controversial remark about drinking a bitter cup of Folgers coffee. I know some of you drink that stuff. But even this week, as, as I studied through this passage and prayed, out, uh, prayed over it and, and read one helpful resource, uh, it, it doesn't quite mean that. Let me, let me read it again very carefully, verse 10. Therefore, his people, that is God's people, turn back to them, the fat cats, the evil people, and they find no fault in them. That is, God's people... They look at the life of wicked people, and it seems to be going well for them. 
So they say, not, not only do I want to drink that cup and experience that life, but I find no fault in someone who turns their back on God and is happy and has what they need. So part of Asaph's problem is it's not just that wicked people are oppressive, terrible, manipulative, and they're living the good life. It's that they're pulling good, godly people trying to follow God and saying, yeah, let's just forget it. It's a waste of time to be a religious, God-fearing person. Continues in verses 11 and 12 in his description. These fat cats. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease. And they increase in riches. You get his frustration? It's not just an old covenant blessing and cursing frustration. This is a frustration that maybe you and I have. God, why does it seem that people who are far off from you, hating you, have a measure of earthly inheritance and comfort in this life? But me, why am I suffering? It doesn't seem fair. Perhaps God isn't as good as I thought when I was a kid. Or maybe he's good, but he's just not powerful. Well, both of those are wrong. And you know what circumstances tend to do to us? Us who would desire to follow God, well, they, they make us bitter. Look at his bitterness in verse 13. All in vain. Have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence? Translation, what a waste of time. And some of you kids, you think that sometimes. I know you do, because us older people think that too. What a waste of time. Really? Coming to church? Praying? Reading the Bible? I'm I'm not feeling it. And some of you guys have been around a while. You're not feeling it either. Because when our circumstances loom large, when we're wrestling with heavy, difficult things of life, sometimes in our most honest moments, moments we're saying this whole thing feels like a waste of time. And it's not that it's just a waste of time, but he's reminded by it continually. Look at verse 14. For all the day long, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. You know, some of us are, wow, if I just get a good night's sleep, if I just, you know, I'll I'll just watch some YouTube videos as I go to bed. Maybe I'll listen to some music. Maybe I'll watch the game. Maybe I'll have a a good meal. And I'll get home and I'll rest and, and things will be good tomorrow. But that's not the real world, is it? Oftentimes, when our circumstances loom large, we go to bed hoping that they disappear. And then we wake up, and they're still there. I still got deep issues in here. I still have an idea of who I thought God was, but my circumstances are telling me something completely different. I got sin that I'm wrestling with that I don't want to tell anyone about. It hasn't changed. The circumstances loom large. I feel like I'm wasting my time, and every morning, it's the same thing. You guys been there? Yeah, I think you have. 
But look at verse 15. If I had said, I will speak thus, old Bible way to say, man, if, if, I, if I dropped this on someone else, if I was honest, if I, if I told them how I really felt, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Isn't it so true when circumstances loom large in our minds that we believe the lie straight from hell that says, I can't tell anyone. So what do we do? We come on Sunday morning and we smile at each other and you all look very pretty this morning. And we put on our best and we say, oh, I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm fine. You're fine. Well, how's Bob? He's fine. Oh, it's all fine. And many, many of us are like ASAP where we're wrestling with the circumstance. In reality, we're saying, I'm, I'm nearly slipping from this Christian life. I had an idea of who I thought God was, but now that my circumstances tell me different, now that my marriage is a mess, but you know, I can't tell anyone. And, you know, sometimes it's not always big stuff. Sometimes it's small, frivolous things. Well, I don't want to tell anyone that I don't like how God's made me. I don't want to identify as a short little guy with a big nose, thinning hair. Like, it's all downhill from here, guys. You know, you know we, so we wrestle with circumstances that loom in our mind, whether we're young or we're old. We got the test tomorrow. We got parents who don't understand us. We got kids who, well, you know, maybe sometimes they're brats. I mean, not your kids. But we're scared to speak to say, and we isolate ourselves. You wonder why deconstruction happens in our culture? You wonder why there's many people who grow up in a church setting and they slip off that foundation like this man's slipping off? It's because oftentimes, brothers and sisters, the church isn't a safe place to say, I'm struggling. Oh, God help us. Why is it good to be near God? Because we have looming, large circumstances. And I need something better than a Band-Aid and a Tylenol. Do they still make the Flintstone gummy vitamins? I need something bigger than that. I need a God that is able to meet, not only meet my circumstances, but to, but, but to be bigger than my circumstances. It's good for me to be near God because I need to know that my circumstances aren't the end-all, be-all of my life. And some of us, some of you have been through very difficult, hard things. And some of you young people, you will bear the scars and the marks of difficult, hard things. It is good to be near God because our circumstances, well, they loom large. And we need a God who's bigger than our circumstances. Just by way of practical application, what are the things we run to in our circumstances? Well, when it hits the fan, what are we going to run to? What comfort, what temporary satisfaction will we hope bring fullness, joy, recovery, answers, the things of this life, my friends, are ultimately designed to fail you. Do you know that? 
Because the temporary things that we run to week in and week out, well, they, they last for a moment, but they've never taken care of all the problems or even any of the problems fully. Our circumstances loom large, and you will have to wrestle with this week as you're driving on 210 probably. Is it good for me to be near God because I need something bigger than what this world offers? Second reason, it is good to be near God, not only because our circumstances loom large, but because I need, I need desperately recalibration. Uh, Read with me, please, verses 16 and 17. But when I thought how to understand this, all this stuff, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Understatement of the century, by the way. How many of us lay at night, lay awake at night, trying to figure out the entire world? <laughs> How many of us drive and our drive time is consumed by situations, conversations, circumstances? How can I fix it? How can I get the money? How can I help my kids? How do I plan for the future? How do I get through high school? It seemed to me a wearisome task. (laughs) Yeah, bro, wearisome. Because you could do all the thinking in the world. You can be analytical. You can be creative. You can diagram it all out. But we're all left trying to figure out what this life is and how we fit in it. Oh, yes, it's a wearisome task. But it doesn't end there, thankfully. Verse 17 says, it was wearisome. Until, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Now, this word sanctuary isn't what you might think it means. This word sanctuary isn't, oh, we come into a beautiful hall like this, and there's lights, and there's music, and and they dim it, and they had a fog machine. And I came into the sanctuary, and and I saw, and I felt, and there was this pristine, beautiful, eloquent, three-point sermon with a poem on the end. No, no. The sanctuary of God is shorthand in the Old Testament for, I went into the presence of God. That's when recalibration started happening. That's when I started understanding things and seeing things, not just with my mind, but also with my heart. Asap says, yeah, it was wearisome trying to figure out who God is, how these circumstances make sense, and I couldn't figure out until I went in. And I heard a great sermon? No. Until I went in and I heard this cool sermon jam on YouTube? No. Until I felt something? No. The recalibration happened when he went into the presence of God. Now, I understand that this room is called the Great Hall. The only thing that will make it great is not its size. And it's, it's big. It's nice. Not the number of seats. Not the number of people in the seats. Oh, it's, it's good to see you. What will make this hall great is that when people come in, the presence of God is here amongst his people. God has given you wonderful facilities. 
But what makes it great, what makes it truly a sanctuary, is God is there. Now, that's very Old Testament language. Now, good news for you, you're a part of a new, better covenant, a newer promise. So in the Old Testament, if you wanted to go into the presence of God, all right, we, we, we got a tent. You, we got a tent you can go into. And some of you have some pretty small camping tents. Like that's, you know, what, I got to go into a tent? Yeah, you want to meet God, go into this tent. Or how about a tabernacle? How about a temple? But Jesus comes in, in, in John 2. He's like, oh, this, this temple, cute, cute temple. That's, that's nice. If you tear it down, it'll raise up in three days. And the Jews are going, you know, what are you talking about? This took years to build. Tear down a temple and build it up in three days? What Jesus is saying throughout the New Covenant and the New Testament is this. Okay, yeah, you used to go to a tent, a tabernacle, a temple to be in the presence of God. But if you want God, if you want recalibration, if you want to be in his presence, you go to Jesus. That is what the Bible teaches. So some of you, you know this, or you're here and you're exploring Christianity, but, but it can't be assumed. It has to be said. How is the presence of God experienced by Christians? Well, it's experienced through the gospel. The gospel is this good news that says you and I left to ourselves, but we're like ASAP. We're full of doubting and rebellion, skepticism, good and bad, wrestling with heavy issues and trying to figure out life on our own and turning our back on God. But God, in his kindness, he sent the God-man, Jesus Christ. Being fully God and fully man, he came and he lived a life that you and I could never live, a perfect, sinless life. That is, as he went through a four-way intersection on 210, he's not mumbling under his breath. And he takes that perfect life and he sacrifices it on a cross. It's called the divine exchange, the great substitution, in which he says, I'll exchange my perfect life for their imperfect, sinful life. So when he hung on a cross, that's not simply some cute Christian thing that we talk about on Easter. But rather, it's a historical reality that says Jesus, the God-man, hung on a cross and bore the penalty for our sin. He was put in the ground and he rose the third day. And what that affords you and I is, yes, someday heaven. That sounds great. I can't wait. I'm ready. No tears, no circumstance, nothing but full unity and joy and worship with Jesus forever. We'll all like each other a lot more in heaven, by the way. <laughs> It'll be great. But do you know that's only part of the Christian message? Paul says in Galatians 1 that Jesus died to save us from this present evil age. And what that means is, that as we trust in Jesus, we believe he is who he says he is, that he did what he said he did. God does something in the life of a genuine, faithful follower of Jesus. He recalibrates them. He recalibrates their mind and heart 
to turn away from a life of self and to turn to a life of following Jesus. So as we come to our passage, we're saying, that sounds great. I got circumstances. I might be slipping off of who I thought God was. I'm trying to figure this life out. And it's a wearisome task. Where's the sanctuary? Where's the place of recalibration, a changed mind and a changed heart? It's found in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Go to him. Now, this recalibration, it has results. It changes your life. Notice with me how Asap's thinking and heart is changed. First, with his enemies. He sees his enemies different, verses 18 through 20. Truly, you set them, the fat cats, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment swept away utterly by tears, like a dream when one awakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, when you take action, you will despise them as phantoms. Now, don't get it twisted. This is what he's saying. I previously, at the beginning of my song I'm penning, I had a mindset and a worldview and a heart that said, I'm envious of wicked people. I'm doubting you, God, because the wicked people around me are having the good life, and here is me, poor me. But do you notice that he's no longer envious? He has pity on them. The people around you may have a measure of earthly inheritance and joy, but if all they get is the marriage, the kids, the boat, the truck, uh, I found out that it's not good that I like Chevy trucks. Some people told me it has to be Ford. Uh, we'll see in heaven who's right on that, by the way. But th- there, there's a sense in which we, 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 we have a lot of questions. And if all this world offers is the material things that will fade away, he goes from envy to pity. Oh, how sad. How sad are the lives where the grandest thing they can think of is this Babylonian life, this short, temporary inheritance. This isn't a malicious statement. It's just one of observation. As we get older, what do we lose? Our beauty, our intellect, our loved ones who pass on. We only hold it for a moment, don't we? You young people. Seems great, doesn't it? Oh, and it is. I hope you enjoy the good gifts God gives you in this life. Just last for a moment, man. It goes. It fades. How sad. So ASAP comes and he says, my thinking's been recalibrated and I feel pity. I feel sorry. For those who have such a short-sighted vision of what this life entails. Don't get it wrong. Enjoy. Enjoy what God's given you. Take the boat out tomorrow. Great. Oh, but how sad. If we're envious of a life that only lasts, as James says, like a vapor. 
But it wasn't just his thinking on his enemies, these fat cats. It really, you know, it's, it's interesting. He doesn't even call them enemies anymore. He looks at them and, and, he, and he feels pity because they're humans. They might look different, act different, believe different, but he has pity and empathy. I think there's a lot that we could learn there. But it's not just that his thinking on his enemies changed, but, but, but his thinking on himself changes. Read verses 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. The recalibration, the new mind and the new heart that God gives to people who trust in Jesus is this. I'm not who I thought I was. Some of you are very capable and self-made and brilliant and full of all kinds of great qualities. But I want to remind you of a bumper sticker I saw once. It said, I knew everything until I turned 18. So just keep that in mind, kids. There's a sense in which that's true of our lives. <laughs> Matt Nagel, I knew everything. Well, God changed my heart when I was 20 years old and I became a Christian. And I've imperfectly walked that life. But I, I, I thought I knew a lot more at 20 than I know right now. Isn't that the mark of every Christian life? Like ASAP, we come, in, we come into the presence of God. Our thinking and our minds are recalibrating. We say, maybe I don't have it all figured out. Maybe I'm not as smart as I think. And what ASAP was doing and what you and I, we do, I think unintentionally, is we put ourselves above God, above God's word. Do you notice how the beginning of the psalm, the song starts? seems like ASAP is the one. Well, God, I thought you were, and now my circuit, he's putting himself on top, looking down. But now he comes and he says, my thinking and my mind, my heart, it's been recalibrated. I've been in the presence of God. And now, instead of putting myself above God, above his word, I put myself underneath it. And I say, I was just a dumb animal. I didn't know any better God. But it's not just the recalibration on how he views his enemies or himself. But most importantly, it's a recalibration on how he views God. Some of you are bored with God. Some of you are doubting God. Some of us aren't fully satisfied as we should be. So what, what kind of recalibration happens with ASAP when he goes into God's presence? Well, read with me, please, verses 23 through 26. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you receive me to glory. <laughs> Whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart, yes, they may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You catch that? You, you, you. My thinking has been recalibrated. My heart and mind have been changed. And now that I've been in your presence, I'm convinced of this. 
It started at the beginning, I. I was thinking, I was feeling, I wanted. But then I come to realize that I was a brute. And really, this life, ultimately, Lord, is about you. You are providentially working. You have mysterious reasons and ways for the circumstances that loom large over my life. You, you hold me. Not self-made. I didn't make myself. I'm not a strong man. No, you hold me by your right hand. <laughs> and not only that, he, I mean, let's be honest. He's not just holding us. Sometimes he's dragging us along and carrying us. Because if we're stricken every morning, we don't, have the, we don't have the capacity to move along. But in his kindness, in his goodness, Asaph says, my thinking on God has changed. I think we fall into this trap often, don't we? Big circumstances. We're trying to figure it out. It's all on us. And we get a clear picture of God in his presence. Sometimes it's reading the scriptures quietly at home. Sometimes it's hearing a word that just hits and smacks right where you need it. Sometimes it's an encouraging comfort or a song that we sing or a sweet time of private prayer and quiet meditation. God, in his kindness, he recalibrates us. <laughs> Why is it good for me to be near God? Because I am a man in need of constant recalibration. I'm a, a man of need who, who constantly needs to be re-centered and redirected, redirected as I kind of go off on the rails or the shoulder of, of, of 210. It's good. It's good for me to be near God. I need, you need recalibration. But lastly and finally here, it's good to be near God. Yes, because my circumstances loom large, because I need recalibration. But because it's good to be near God because he's good. Because he's good. Read verses 27 and 28. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. You might be thinking, oh, okay, that's not, that sounds a little judgmental. Doesn't sound good. What ASAP is saying is the evil and the wickedness that I see in this world, it's not on me to bring about final, full justice in this life. Should we pursue it? Absolutely. But ASAP comes and he says, These oppressors. It's not that they just live in a different lifestyle. It's that they were actively oppressing and hurting people. Pride is their necklace. Violence is their garment. And Asap comes around and he says, it's good for me to be near God because God is good. And if justice isn't fully met in this life, well, listen, I'm looking forward to the next life. My best life is not this one. It's the next one. Where all the wrongs of this broken world will be made right. He is good. It's good to be near him because he's good. Because he brings justice. Because it's not all for nothing. The hard, 
terrible, dark things that we go through. But verse 28 says, But in contrast, but for me, it is good to be near God. That's our title this morning. I've made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Why is it to be good? Why, why is it good to be near God? Well, because he really is good in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to be near him because these are things that Jesus offers to those who trust in him. Forgiveness. Yeah, even forgiveness of the thing you just thought of. Restoration and right standing with God. How about a genuine peace that surpasses understanding in the midst of looming circumstances? You, you know this isn't ASAP's only circumstance, right? You don't trust Jesus, get baptized, and it's all, you know, rainbows and butterflies. No. It's good to be near God because He is good. Because He is a refuge and a protection. Because He is the one that recalibrates, that brings comfort. Because He's the one that builds and protects His church. You worried about a potential transition here at Lakewood? Oh yeah, you should. Me too. Good thing it's not on us. Good thing, ultimately, it is good for all of us to be near God because He is good. And in the person of Jesus, He's a refuge and a protection and a recalibrator and a convictor and a friend of sinners. And the reminder that you might need this morning is this. Regardless of what your morning looked like, maybe you kicked the dog, yelled at the kids on the way in, Regardless of the week that you've been going through and the deep hurt and circumstances and the trials of your life, there is great grace for you in the gospel of Jesus. It is not too late to turn to him even now. This is an easy passage to kind of beat ourselves up with. So let me offer you an encouragement. You know, because we, we could come here and say, oh, I wish I was a better Christian. Got to figure things out. And there's a sense in which we can say, ah, oh, I need to work harder on being, being near God. I got big circumstances. I, I need recalibration. I'm thinking and actly, acting wrongly. I'm not totally convinced he, he, he is good. And the, the encouragement is this. You're already doing this. If you've trusted in Jesus, this is already a reality in your life. Are you doing it perfectly? <laughs> no. No, none of us are. We're trying to figure it out as we go. God's helping us. So tomorrow when you go out into the real world and the exploding diaper, yeah, that's a real thing, right? That happens. When you meet the circumstance and the trial, deep, difficult health issues, fractured relationships, concerns over friendships as a young person, dealing with, you know, punk parents who don't listen and understand well. Some of you parents dealing with kids, maybe, maybe are, you know, brats sometimes. I mean, not your kids probably, but, you know, other people's kids. We go out and we're not going to do it perfectly. But I need you to know that this is already true for your life. You know it's good to be near God. And God will faithfully shape these things in you. 
in looming circumstances, seeking the means of grace to be recalibrated, and truly believing, not in some academic, mental, you know, fake Christian way, but the declaration of my heart says, yes, it is good to be near God. He is good. And do you know that that is the statement? That is the founding belief of 12 men praying in an upper room that turned the Middle East on its head. 12 men praying, convinced that it is good to be near God. It is good to be near Jesus. If you believe that and you live in light of that, well, that means you're going to serve this body. That means you're going to be a part of the lives of other pilgrims trying to figure out their way in this life. That means when you go out into the real world tomorrow and you're convinced that it's good to be near God, you will be a shining light and a vocal witness to these kinds of heaven, heavenly realities. Jelly Roll is not the only one asking questions, is he? No. You are in the midst of family, friends, and a community who deeply need to know that God is good. It is good to be near him. Let's pray that these things would be true of our life. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name, in his righteousness, in his work and not our own. Uh, we know that you hear prayer, not because we're amazing, but because Jesus is. And in his name, we boldly ask that you would help us to cling to these truths. That we would be men and women and children shaped by your word, by your spirit. That as we go out with an eye towards serving not only one another, but the world around us, people would see that God is good. It is good to be near God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.